All right, Wrestling With Theology fans, this is Pastor Doug Minton here to stand in the confessional corner with you as we continue on our journey through the Formula of Concord's seventh article on the Holy Supper of our Lord. We're starting on page 569 of Concordia, the Lutheran Confessions, the reader's edition of the formula of the Book of Concord. We're going to start in paragraph 42 as we have the heading on the words of institution. So we're looking at this by looking at the words of institution. Take, eat, this is my body. Drink of it, all of you. This cup is the New Testament in my blood, which is shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. So this is what we are looking at this week as we look at paragraphs 42 to 72 in this article. This very opinion, just stated, which we covered last week, is founded on the only firm, immovable, and undoubtable rock of truth. It comes from the word of, words of institution and the Holy Divine Word. This was how it was understood, taught, and spread by the Holy Evangelists and Apostles and their disciples and hearers. So everything that we had talked about on what the Lord's Supper is last week, this is all because it comes from, first and foremost, the words of institution, where Jesus comes and says, take, eat, this is my body. Drink of it. This is the blood of the new covenant. This is what has been handed down from the very beginning of Christianity. We continue on in paragraph 43. Concerning our Lord and our Savior Jesus Christ, as our only teacher, the solemn command has been given from heaven to all people, listen to him, Matthew 17, 5. He is not a mere man or angel, neither is he just true, wise, and mighty, but he is the eternal truth and wisdom itself and almighty God. He knows very well what and how he is to speak. He can also powerfully affect and do everything that he says and promises. He says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away, Luke 21, 33. And all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, Matthew 28, 18. Consider this true Almighty Lord, our Creator and Redeemer, Jesus Christ, after the Last Supper. He is just beginning His bitter suffering and death for our sins. In those sad last moments, with great consideration and solemnity, He institutes this most venerable sacrament. It was to be used until the end of the world with great reverence and obedience and humility. It was to be an abiding memorial of His bitter suffering and death and all His benefits. It was a sealing and confirmation of the New Testament, a consolation of all distressed hearts, and a firm bond of unity for Christians with Christ their head and with one another. In ordaining and instituting the Holy Supper, he spoke these words about the bread, which he blessed and gave, Take, eat, this is my body, which is given for you. And about the cup or wine, this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. We are certainly duty-bound not to interpret and explain these words in a different way. For these are the words of the eternal, true, and almighty Son of God, our Lord, Creator, and Redeemer, Jesus Christ. We cannot interpret them as allegorical, figurative, turns of phrases in a way that seems agreeable to our reason. With simple faith and due obedience, we receive the words as they read in their proper and plain sense. We do not allow ourselves to be diverted from Christ to express words by any objections or human contradictions spun from human reason, however appealing they may appear to reason. 
All right, so the first thing we have to accept is that these words are the words of the one true God. They are the words of our great Redeemer and Creator. And therefore, we have no authority to change what these words mean. We have no authority to say, well, Jesus said this, but he really means this other thing. No. We as mere human beings, creatures, cannot say that Jesus actually meant this when he just literally simply says, take, eat, this is my body. Take, drink, this is the blood of the New Testament. We must understand the words simply as they read. This is where we get into all kinds of trouble with, well, anybody who does not have a liturgical background. So the Lutherans, the Catholics, the Orthodox, we all understand the solemnity and the sacredness of the Lord's Supper. But you get into the non-denominational evangelical and Baptist, Methodist world and all of those other branches of the Reformation, and, well, they decide, well, no, it has to make sense because Jesus couldn't possibly do this. My typical response is, did you forget the whole part where he says he is God? What can't God do? When we understand that, we understand that we are to take these words at face value. The Concordus go on in paragraph 46. When Abraham heard God's word about offering his son, Genesis 22, he had reason enough to debate whether the word should be understood literally or with a tolerable or mild interpretation. They conflicted openly not only with all reason and with the divine and natural law, but also with the chief article of faith about the promised seed, Christ, who was to be born of Isaac. Nevertheless, when the promise of the blessed seed from Isaac was given to him, Abraham honored God's truthfulness. He confidently concluded and believed that what God promised, he could also do, although it appeared impossible to his reason. Hebrews 11, 17-19. So also about Isaac's sacrifice, he understood and believed God's word and command plainly and simply, as they read according to the letter. He committed the matter to God's almighty power and wisdom, which he knew has many more modes or ways to fulfill the promise of the seed from Isaac than he could comprehend with his blind reason. We, too, are simply to believe with all humility and obedience our Creator and Redeemer's plain, firm, clear, solemn words and command, without any doubt and dispute about how it agrees with our reason or is possible. For these words were spoken by the Lord, who is infinite wisdom and truth itself. He can do and accomplish everything He promises. And this is simply our role as Christians, our role as worshipers, receiving the gifts of God in the sacrament is we are simply to believe them as he has given them to us. Paragraph 48. All the circumstances of the Holy Supper's institution testifies that these words of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, which in themselves are simple, plain, clear, firm, and beyond doubt, cannot and must not be understood other than in their usual, proper, and common meaning. For Christ gives this command at the table and at supper. There is certainly no doubt that he speaks of real, natural bread and of natural wine. He also speaks of oral eating and drinking, so there can be no metaphor, that is, a change of meaning, in the word bread, as though Christ's body were a spiritual bread or a spiritual food of souls. 
Christ is careful not to use metonymy either. In other words, there is no change of meaning in the word body. He does not speak about a sign for his body, or about a symbol or figurative body, or about the power of his body and the benefits that he has earned by the sacrifice of his body for us. Instead, he speaks about his true essential body, which he delivered into death for us, and about his true essential blood, which he shed for us on the tree of the cross for the forgiveness of sins. Surely there is no interpreter of Jesus Christ's words as faithful and sure as the Lord Christ himself. He understands best his words and his heart and opinion. He is the wisest and most knowledgeable for explaining them. He does not use allegory to make his last will and testament and his ever-abiding covenant and union. He does not use allegory elsewhere in presenting and confirming all articles of faith and in the institution of all other signs of the covenant and of grace or sacraments, that is, circumcision, the various offerings in the, Lord, in the Old Testament, and holy baptism. He does not use allegorical words, but entirely proper, simple, believable, and clear words. In order that no misunderstanding can take place, he explains them more clearly with the words given for you, shed for you. He also lets his disciples rest in the simple, proper sense and commands them that they should teach all nations to keep what he had commanded them, the apostles. So the circumstances, the fact that he is doing this after supper, during the Passover, there is no way we can say, no, he's doing figurative stuff here. He's using metaphors. No. In the most solemn of days, and truly for first century Israel, this was the most solemn of days in out the entire year. You don't do figurative. You don't sit there and use a lot of allegory. You do exactly what has been done for centuries as the Israelites came together, sacrificed their Passover lambs, put the blood on the doorpost and upon the lentil so that the angel of death would pass over them. This is not a figurative thing. They go back to remember exactly what happened in Egypt in Exodus 12. There is no figurative language here. All right, picking up in paragraph 52. All three evangelists and St. Paul, after Christ's ascension, received the same institution of the Lord's Supper. Unanimously and with the same words and syllables, they repeat these distinct, clear, firm, and true words of Christ about the consecrated and distributed bread. This is my body. They all repeat these words in one way, without interpretation, turn of phrase, figure, or change. Therefore, there is no doubt about the other part of the sacrament. The words of Luke and Paul, this cup is the New Testament in my blood, can have no other meaning than what St. Matthew and St. Mark give. This, namely what you orally drink out of this cup, is the, my blood of the covenant, whereby I establish, seal, and confirm with you men this, my testament, my covenant, that is, the forgiveness of sins. And yes, we could go through, and I think I will again when we get back into the Catechism in 2025, going back through the Book of Concord again, and look at the fact that they, there are differences in wording, differences in things that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and St. Paul all have in theirs, which is why for centuries the church has conflated all of them into what we have as the words of institution in our divine service.
Because even though there might be some words that are kind of different, maybe out of order in some places, but they're all the same thing. They all mean the same thing. That this is Jesus's last will and testament given for all of the church for all time. St. Paul repeats, confirms, and explains Christ's words where he writes as follows. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? 1 Corinthians 10, 16. This is to be considered with all diligence and seriousness. It is an especially clear testimony of the true essential presence and distribution of the body and blood of Christ in the supper. From this, we clearly learn that not only the cup that Christ blessed at the first supper, and not only the bread that Christ broke and distributed, but also the bread we break and the cup we bless is the communion of Christ's body and blood. So all who eat this bread and drink of this cup truly receive and are partakers of Christ's true body and blood. Imagine that Christ's body was present and partaken of, not truly and essentially, but only according to its power and efficacy then the bread would have to be called not a communion of the body, but of the spirit, power, and benefits of Christ, as the Apology argues and concludes in Article 10, Paragraph 54. Now imagine that Paul were speaking only of the spiritual communion of Christ's body through faith, as the sacramentarians pervert this passage. Then Paul would not say that the bread, but that spirit or faith was the communion of Christ's body and blood. But he says that the bread is the communion of Christ's body, and that all who partake of the consecrated bread also become partakers of Christ's body. Therefore, he must indeed be speaking out of a, not of a spiritual, but of a sacramental or oral participation of Christ's body, which is common to godly Christians and godless Christians, those who are Christians only in name. So that we have this blessing that we participate in, and whether we have faith or we don't have faith, when we come together to receive the blessed bread and wine in the Lord's Supper, we receive Christ's body and blood. This is why the church for centuries has had the practice of closed communion. That, that it's not only a thing of, well, we're all Christians, so let's all partake, but that we all believe the same thing, that we all know that we are all on the same page. Paragraph 57. This is shown about also by the causes and circumstances of this entire exposition of St. Paul. For he frightens and warns those who ate of offerings to idols and had fellowship with heathen and devil worship, and nevertheless went also to the Lord's table and became partakers of Christ's body and blood. He warns them so that they do not receive Christ's body and blood for judgment and condemnation to themselves. For all those who become partakers of the consecrated and broken bread in the supper have communion also with Christ's body. Therefore, St. Paul cannot be speaking of spiritual communion with Christ, which no person can abuse, and against which also no one is able to be warned. So the fact that we have this warning from Paul in 1 Corinthians 10 and 11 that there is a wrong way to partake of the Lord's Supper, that there is an unworthy way, and that you can't be at the Lord's table and also worshiping at the table of the demons as well. This means that this has to be a real participation in Christ's real body. This can't be a spiritual thing, because spiritual things 
have no substance. Therefore, they are whatever you want to make of them, which is why there are so many people who want to be spiritual, yet not religious. They finish off this section, paragraph 58. Our dear fathers and predecessors like Luther and other pure teachers of the Augsburg Confession explain the statement of Paul in such a way that it agrees completely with Christ's words. They write that the bread we break is the distributed body of Christ or the common communicated body of Christ distributed to those who receive the broken bread. All of this comes from the words of institution, the fact that Jesus specifically said these words. He could have used any words. He could have said it in any way he wanted to, but he gave us these words, which is also why it is so important that we hear these words every time we come to the rail, every time we come to the altar to receive Christ's body and blood. We need to hear the words of institution. It is simply just that important. Right now, as we move into paragraph 59, we have the next section that they talk about having gone through and proven without a doubt that this is Christ's real body. This is Christ's real blood given and shed for you. Now we have to talk about the other part of the sacramentarians issue, the two types of eating. That's where we pick up in paragraph 59. We unanimously abide by this simple, well-founded explanation of this glorious testimony. 1 Corinthians 10. We are truly shocked that some are now so bold that they ventured to quote the passage below. Previously, even they attributed this to the sacramentarians as a foundation for their error. Now they say in the supper, Christ's body is only partaken of spiritually. The bread is the communion of Christ's body. In other words, it is that by which we have fellowship with Christ's body, which is the church. Or it is the means by which we believers are united with Christ, just as the word of the gospel received by faith is a means through which we are spiritually united to Christ and built into Christ's body, which is the church. It is not only godly, pious, and believing Christians who orally receive Christ's true body and blood in the sacrament. So do unworthy, godless hypocrites like Judas and his ilk, who have no spiritual communion with Christ, and who go to the Lord's table without true repentance and conversion to God. St. Paul teaches clearly that by their unworthy eating and drinking, they grievously sin against Christ's body and blood. For he says, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, sins not merely against the bread and wine, not merely against the signs and symbols and emblems of the body and blood, but will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. 1 Corinthians 11, 27. Such a person dishonors, abuses, and disgraces the body and blood, like the Jewish people who by their actions violated Christ's body and killed him. The ancient Christian fathers and church teachers have unanimously understood and explained the passage in this way. So we have here again, not only is it the righteous, not only is it the pious Christians who receive the body and blood of Christ, it is everybody who receives it. Whether it's a pious Christian or a bloodthirsty Muslim, or even an atheist, everybody receives the body and blood of Christ when they come to the Holy Supper. It is not something that becomes it when you take it by faith, because that is the spiritual understanding of things. That is not the case. Jesus doesn't say, take it and, well, for most of you, this will be good for you. But some of you, no, not so much because we do have the discrepancy in the Gospels as to whether Judas received 
the Holy Supper and the consecrated bread and wine at the Last Supper or not. That is a debate that has still been going on since Bible times. We continue on now. Paragraph 61. There is a twofold eating of Christ's flesh. One is spiritual, which Christ describes especially in John 6, 54. This eating happens in no other way than with the spirit and faith in preaching and meditation on the gospel as well as in the Lord's Supper. By itself, this is useful and helpful and necessary for all Christians at all times for salvation. Without this spiritual participation, the sacramental or oral eating in the Supper is not only not helpful, but is even harmful and damning. So this idea of a spiritual eating, yes, Lutherans do believe in a spiritual eating of the word, which is why we have in the Collect of the Word, well, at least in the old versions, they changed it in this one, in the Lutheran service book, but that we hear, mark, learn, and inwardly digest God's holy word. That this is what happens. The spiritual eating happens when we hear the preaching, when we meditate on the Word of God. And it's also there in the Lord's Supper, but it is not the main thing in the Lord's Supper. Because, paragraph 62, this spiritual eating is nothing other than faith. It means to hear God's Word, in which Christ, true God and man, is presented to us together with all benefits that He has purchased for us by His flesh given into death for us, and by His blood shed for us, namely God's grace, the forgiveness of sins, righteousness, and eternal life. It means to receive it with faith and keep it for ourselves. It means that in all troubles and temptations, we firmly rely with sure confidence and trust and abide in this consolation. We have a gracious God and eternal salvation because of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the spiritual eating that is truly biblical. Now we get into the other side and the sacramentarians and other things that we want to get into. The other eating of Christ's body is oral or sacramental. When Christ's true essential body and blood are orally received and partaken of in the Holy Supper by all who eat and drink the consecrated bread and wine in the Supper. This is done by the believing as a certain pledge and assurance that their sins are surely forgiven them and that Christ dwells in them and is at work in them. This, this Supper is received by the unbelieving for their judgment and condemnation. The words of the institution by Christ clearly declare this. At the table and during the supper, he offers his disciples natural bread, natural wine, which he calls his true body and true blood. At the same time, he says, eat and drink. In view of the circumstances, this command clearly cannot be understood as anything other than oral eating and drinking. However, this is not in a crude, carnal, capernitic way, but in a supernatural way beyond understanding. Afterward, the other command adds still another spiritual eating when the Lord Christ says further, this do. In remembrance of me, he requires faith. So we have this oral sacramental eating, which we have the problem with the idea of the sacramentarians calling this a capernitic, cannibalistic eating, that we are tearing the flesh of Christ apart by our natural teeth. While it is received orally, and we do chew the wafer with our teeth. We do have the wine cross our tongue. It is not done in a way that is just like normal food. This is the way the sacramentarians believe us to think, is that you know, we're actually, we actually have like the second knuckle of Jesus's left ring finger 
in this wafer and that the blood comes from some vein. I want to pick one. But no, it is a way that is beyond all understanding. Because if it were truly a way of that we could understand it, we would not call it a sacrament. Because a sacrament, by its etymology, is the Latin translation of the Greek word mysterion. The sacraments are mysteries. We know what they do. We just can't explain adequately how they do it, why they do it. But we have the clear command that this is it. Paragraph 66. All the ancient Christian teachers teach clearly and in full agreement with the entire Holy Christian Church. According to these words of Christ's institution and the explanation of St. Paul, Christ's body is not only received spiritually through faith, which occurs also outside of the sacrament, but also orally, not only by believing and godly people, but also by unworthy, unbelieving, false, and wicked Christians. Since it is too long to be listed here, we would, for the sake of brevity, have the Christian reader referred to the exhaustive writings of our theologians. It is clear how unjustly and wickedly the sacramentarian fanatics, especially Theodore Beza, ridiculed the Lord Christ, St. Paul, and the entire church. For they call this oral partaking and that of the unworthy two horses, hairs, and a device of which the devil is ashamed. They also call the doctrine about Christ's majesty Satan's excrement by which the devil deceives and tricks other people. In other words, they speak so horribly of it that a godly Christian person should be ashamed to translate it. It must also be carefully explained who the unworthy guests of the supper are. They are those who go to the sacrament without true repentance and sorrow for their sins, without true faith and the good intention of amending their lives. By their unworthy oral eating of Christ's body, they load themselves with damnation, that is, with temporal and eternal punishments, and become guilty of profaning Christ's body and blood. So who is unworthy? Those who do not believe. Those who do not believe in Jesus, those who do not believe in the true presence of Jesus' body and blood in, with, and under the bread and wine, and those who have no desire to amend their ways. This is one of the great things of the prayer and individual confession and absolution as we have it in the Lutheran hymnals, is that we have the prayer, we have the confession of our sins to our Father Confessor, and then we end it by saying, and I would like to do better. There is the desire to amend our lives. Why? Because we don't want to go on sinning because, well, yes, sinning is fun. Sinning is easy. Living the Christian life is hard. This is why this podcast is called Wrestling with Theology. This is not just laid back theology. This is wrestling. We have to understand that this is difficult. This is not just like the poster, all the things I needed to know I learned in kindergarten. This is something that we wrestle with throughout our lives because we not only must have true faith in Christ, in his presence in the supper, but also the desire to amend our lives, to be more like him. All right, finishing up paragraph 69 to 72. Some Christians have a weak faith and are shy, troubled, and heartily terrified because of the great number of their sins. They think that in their great impurity, they are not worthy of this precious treasure in Christ's benefits. They feel their weakness of faith and lament it, 
and from their heart's desire that they may serve God with stronger, more joyful faith and pure obedience. These are the truly worthy guests for whom this highly venerable sacrament has been especially instituted and appointed. For, Christ says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Matthew eleven twenty eight. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Matthew nine twelve. God's power is made mighty in the weak. Luther's translation of 2 Corinthians 12, 9. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, for God has welcomed him. Romans 14, 1 to 3. Whoever believes in the Son of God, be it with a strong or with a weak faith, may have eternal life. John 3, 15. Worthiness does not depend on the greatness or smallness, the weakness or strength of faith. Instead, it depends on Christ's merit, which the distressed father of little faith, Mark 9, 24, enjoyed as well as Abraham, Paul, and others who have a joyful and strong faith. Let the foregoing be said of the true presence and twofold partaking of Christ's body and blood. These happen either through faith spiritually or also orally, both by the worthy and the unworthy. All right, again, picking up with this idea, who is unworthy? Those who do not believe. Who are worthy? Those who believe, even as weak as their faith may be. Because think about this. Who were the first recipients of the sacrament of the Lord's Supper? It was the 12 apostles. What happens within hours of that? Satan sifts Simon Peter like wheat. Everybody else falls away. Judas betrays him and then hangs himself. These are the guys who got it. These are the guys that Jesus gave it to himself. And if these guys, who Jesus knew would in just mere minutes really, turn their back on him, yes, you may struggle with the depths of your sin, but that is exactly why Jesus has given us this sacrament, to give us the forgiveness of sins, to have it not only spoken to us, but have it placed in our mouths, becoming part of us. That is what is truly worthy in this feast, because it's not about you. It's about Jesus for you, his merits, his gifts given to you. He is the one who makes you worthy, not you. He is the one. He is the great gift. All right, that's it for this week. I thank you for being here. Next week, we get a little further into the article talking about the consecration and the administration of Christ's body and blood in the sacrament. Come back again so we can stand in the confessional corner again next week. But until then, this is Pastor Doug Mitten. Thanking you for being here and wishing God's great blessings as he strengthens your faith through the body and blood that is given to you in the bread and wine so that you can wrestle with the theology around you. Amen.